Well, it's really good to be here. I remember Jeff coming to Chessington, that was 30 years ago. I was about seven at the time. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but no, we've really valued knowing Jeff and Hannah uh, over the years and watching God's blessing upon the work here. And it's a real joy to be with you today. Uh, one of the things I'm finding is a kind of uh, having spent uh, huge rafts of my time at Chessington and very rarely going out preaching is that suddenly when you are kind of travelling around and uh, it's great when people give you a passage. Uh, it's, it's tricky when people say just do what you want to do because um, that is kind of you just don't know where to pitch it. So um, tonight what I've chosen to do is actually preach uh, hopefully it won't be the same sermon, but the sermon I preached at uh, Chesington, my last sermon at Chesington, uh, at the end of the time there, the, the elders said, why don't you, um, the last three sermons, preach about things that are really upon your heart. Uh, so I did one about the, the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to remind you of the gospel. It's the gospel. Uh, did one on, actually, which we did this morning, about more blessed to give than receive. I particularly pitched that at a younger generation. Uh, and uh, tonight I want to do the last one, which is the one of blessed unity. It's always a dangerous one to do, isn't it? Because um, it, you can think, oh, there's a kind of underlying message here that you're pretty disunited. Uh, but one of the joys of being able to do this is that, as far as I'm aware, this is uh, a church, uh, and as Jeff mentioned in prayer, with uh, Cornerstone that's been, been blessed with... Uh, a good degree of unity. And that's the best time, isn't it, uh, as a church, to think about the issue of unity. It's very difficult when you're actually very disunited to come and preach about unity. It might be necessary, but people hear it through very different ears. So we're going to go to Psalm 133, uh, and for a short time tonight, going to think about uh, the issue of unity. Psalm 133. And as we found that, let's pray briefly. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these words that we're going to read now, that were inspired by your your spirit to your servant David, all those hundreds and thousands of years ago, were written for our benefit and are timeless in their application to us. And would you write your word upon our minds and hearts this evening? Come and refresh us, come and speak to us, we pray. And uh, may we hear your voice through your word this evening. Amen. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. On October 28, in the year 2003, a young Harvard student by the name of Mark Zuckerberg was bored. He'd just been jilted by his girlfriend and he was blogging in order to get his girlfriend off his mind. He hacked into the Harvard University server He downloaded the private ID information of every student together with their pictures that was on that server. And he then proceeded to post them on his blog. He then forwarded 
these photos to several university email lists. You can imagine the consternation, the furore that this caused. Within days, his website was shut down. But an idea was born. And on the 4th of February, 2004, just a matter of months later, Zuckerberg founded, well, what do you think he founded? Facebook.com. And those of you who are really switched on to society will know that it's one of the five BAFTA nominations tonight for Best Film of the Year. The film about Mark Zuckerberg and that whole founding of Facebook. But there you are, not sure what the film is like, but it's a marvellous story, isn't it? And, and the strapline, of course, the whole idea of Facebook, its purpose, it says, is that you connect and share with the people in your life. You connect and share with the people in your life. Now, if you don't know what Facebook is, well, I haven't got time to explain it, but somebody will. But a lot of people here, of all ages, will know what Facebook is. Uh, it can either be the biggest waste of time going, or it can be a real aid, can't it? At its worst, it tells you that so-and-so, I'm just about to have a cup of tea. Do I want to know that you're just about to have a cup of tea? Am I interested in that trivia in your life? Not really. But actually, at its best, it can be used to great benefit and effect. But it was all connected with this, this man and his passion to connect people and share with the people in your life. But actually, Christians don't need that. Here in Psalm 133, we have, not Facebook, but we have God's, the very essence of the community that God has called us to and that this psalm is talking about. It's saying there in verse 1, isn't it? It's good for brothers to connect. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Now, the background idea to this psalm is of the people of God, the Israelites, living peacefully together in the land of promise, the land of Canaan. But David, you notice, doesn't attempt to describe unity so much in terms of concepts or ideas. He simply says it is a good thing. As they say in Yorkshire, it's better felt than telt. It's better felt than telt. Some things aren't easy to describe, are they? Try describing a sunset to somebody. Can you do that? To describe the magnificence of a sunset. Or the glory of a mountain range. Or, or the rolling oceans and all their power. Can you describe that? They're better felt than felt, aren't they? And unity is like that. Unity. Words can't adequately display, describe its beauty and its glory. So, in verses 2 and 3, David actually uses two images, two similes, if you like. And firstly, he says, look, this unity is like precious perfume. Verse 2, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. Now, We've got to work at this a bit because this image is rather foreign to kind of our thinking and our understanding. It doesn't kind of immediately connect with us, does it? But when Aaron, and we read about it in Exodus chapter 20 and 21, sorry, 29 and 30, when he was, when he was anointed as the high priest of Israel, 
he would have been drenched in oil, in perfume. In the kind of uh, perfume that the French perfumiers of today would have drolled over with envy. It was poured on his head. It was drenched upon him. Those of you of a certain generation will remember Henry Cooper. Who remembers Henry Cooper? British heavyweight champion. Now you remember Henry, out of the ring, earned his living by doing adverts. What did he do the advert for? The brute. And do you remember the strap line? What was it about in, in brute? There was Henry and he was getting out of the shower and he had his brute. And what would he say when he got the aftershave, the lotion? Slap it all over, slap it all over, wasn't it? That was the strap line. Well, that's nothing compared to the image, the picture here. Aaron is being drenched, flooded in this precious perfume. And its odour and its sweetness and its fragrance would have not only permeated his senses, it would have run down his beard, it would into his nostrils, it would not only fill his senses, it would fill the senses of everybody who was gathered around him. It was incredibly aromatic. And it would have been just astonishing to be part of it. Now, the idea here is of abundance, of sweetness, of plentifulness. And look, says David, like that situation, like that picture, like that oil poured on the head of Aaron, where you get true unity, it's a beautiful thing. It's a precious thing. It's a sweet thing. It's like a sweet fragrance. That's true, isn't it? You can sense it when you come amongst the people of God. And we'll see in a little while on in this, in this psalm that it's the great expectation that God has for his people. You see, here we are, a people of God who are proclaiming a message of reconciliation. The message is, you can be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And being reconciled to God, God is in the business of creating a new community. Showing the world what it's like when you are reconnected to God. The God who himself lives in unity. So you're reconnected to God, but he puts us in community to be reconnected to one another. In order to show people the difference that knowing God makes. That's the point, you see. And it's a sweet thing, isn't it? And the converse is true, it's a very bitter thing when there's disunity because it soon travels through a neighbourhood, doesn't it? Those Christians. You see the way they talk about each other? They can't even agree amongst themselves. Here they are telling us to be reconciled to God. They can't even be reconciled to one another. It's totally hypocrisy, isn't it? It just disintegrates the power of the gospel into that community. But where you've got unity is a very powerful thing. Because it's unity in diversity, as Ephesians 4 reminds us. God does not create us clones. I remember being in the Philippines many years ago with one of our elders from church on a Project Timothy thing. And there we were. Now, you've got to get this picture. It's, It's midday. Only fools and Englishmen are out in the midday sun, yes? And these two other guys who are walking down the, the high street of this village, Nauhan, in, in Mindoro Island, in the Philippines. 
and they're coming toward us. And although they are 150 yards away from us, we know exactly who they are. Because they're wearing a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie and they've got lovely black shiny shoes and their hair is cropped and underneath their arm they've got a big Bible. Who are they? Mormons. Two dear Mormon people coming towards us. Clones. God is not in the business of clones, is he? Isn't that the, isn't that the sheer wonder and of our very being? No two individuals are the same. God isn't in the business of creating us to be clones of one another. Yes, to be clones of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that means reflecting the glory of God in our individuality, in the personality, in the character that God has given us. But in order that, living together in community, we show the difference that God makes in our life. It's sweet perfume. It's sweet perfume. But there's another picture here. It's a picture of refreshment. He says in verse 3, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, I understand that Neil, from seeing a picture in his house today of several mountains around the world, is keen on mountains. I don't know if he knows this or not, but Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. It lies at the northern end of Canaan. It's many, many miles away from Jerusalem. But it was proverbial for its heavy dew, that given certain climatic conditions would be generated by this mountain, and if the, if the wind direction was in a certain direction taking itself, it would take it down to Jerusalem. And there it would fall upon Jerusalem in the hot summers, and it would be incredibly refreshing. It would invigorate new life amongst plants, um, amongst the crops, And that's the picture. David is saying, look, where you've got a God-given unity, and God gives us a unity in the Gospel, Ephesians 4, and calls us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, where you've got that God-given unity, it is a fragrant thing, but it's a refreshing thing. It's a beautiful thing. And it brings well-being, and it brings life. Just turn with me, please, to um, John 17. John's Gospel, 17, and uh, verses 20 and 21. John 17, 20 and 21. It's your last night before you go to your death. And as I forget who it said it, but somebody said, nothing, nothing focuses the mind quite like a good execution. What is your mind focused upon when you know that next day you're going to be put to death? Well, here's Jesus. And the Spirit has given us his mind. It tells us what's on his mind, what's on his heart, and therefore what is on his prayers. And here, in this famous passage in John 17, what does he say? Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, i.e. the apostles, the disciples. 
I pray also for all who will believe in me through their message, through the apostolic message, through the gospel passed down through the generations. That, verse 21, all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you understand how important unity is to the Lord Jesus Christ? Before going to Gethsemane, he pours out his heart. Before the agonies of the cross, this is what's weighing upon his spirit. He had the unity of his people down through the generations, down through the years, upon his heart. And if it weighed upon his heart, then it's something that should weigh upon our hearts as the people of God. Especially as we live in a very individualistic culture. You do know that, don't you? We, we are so individualistic in our thinking. Actually, the Bible is very corporate in its thinking. It's much nearer in terms of culture, the Middle Eastern culture, the African culture, that thinks much more easily in terms of family and tribe and so on than our individualistic Western mindset of the 21st century. So as Christians, we need to repent of that individualism. We need to rejoice in the fact that, yes, God has made us as individuals and each is precious in his sight, but he's put us in family and he's done it for his glory and he's done it so that the world can look on and see the difference that God makes when he comes amongst a diverse group of people of all different ages, all different backgrounds, all different nationalities to put his glory on display and says, this is what the gospel does. No amount of money can achieve this. No amount of education can do this. Politics can't do this. Psychology can't do this. The world can sing of its desire to be at one, but it's a futile hope when you leave God out the picture. Here's Psalm 133, and it's saying, this is what happens when God is in the picture. He alone can bring that unity that actually, in our hearts, we long for. We long to live at peace. We long to live in a world where there's not discord and disharmony and hatred and injustice. We long for those things. Those are God-given instincts in us. But they only come from the God who is the great giver himself. And he's putting it on display. This is the remarkable work of the gospel. He's putting it on display in villages and hamlets and towns and big urban conurbations, wherever there are groups of God's people, whether it's a handful or whether in their thousands, they are put there to put on display to the community around the difference that God makes. So what keeps us? What would you say is the biggest thing that keeps us from unity? What would you say? In one word. Pride. Pride, that's it, isn't it? Pride, sin, kind of the same thing really, isn't it? That's the thing that keeps us from unity. Why were Jacob and Esau estranged from each other for so long? Well, because Jacob and Rebekah came up with a very deceitful scheme uh, to get Isaac to bless Jacob. And that, that whole story is one of disunity and the, the harm, the damage that's brought into the world, brought into a family when that happens. And the Bible is so real about those things. You go to the book of Corinthians and there's disunity in this church that knows great blessing. 
and prides itself on the fact that God has blessed them with so many different charismatic spiritual gifts and yet they're ready to go to court with one another. And Paul has to pull them up and and see how outrageous that is. And the issue is simply pride, sin. It's the first issue, pride is the first sin to come into our life and the last to leave us. That's the reality, isn't it? And the older you get, I hope you realise that. I'm certainly realising that. It's this innate selfishness, this innate ability even to try and manipulate things and people to get my way, to get them to do what I want them to do. And we live in a rights-orientated society. So, I get offended by somebody in the church and what do I do? Well, I go and talk to everybody else in the church about them and I'm never going to talk to that person. And the Bible says that's sin, that's pride, that's the very antithesis of what's been talked about here. So, how can we have the unity that this psalm speaks of? Now, thank God for the unity you have, but never take it for granted. How do you go about guarding it? How do you go about promoting it? Because there's always room for improvement, isn't there? Well, let me just remind you of two or three things. Our unity is founded in our relationship with God. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Even as we thought about this morning, they model relationship to us. They are the ultimate, if you like, of what community is all about. They are so much into relationship, they they live in this mystery that we will never understand this side of heaven of being three in one and one in three. Can you get your mind around that? Of course you can't. But that's the intensity of the relationship. Our unity is found in our relationship with this God. They have community in a way that we can never have. But the wonder of the gospel is this. God reaches down to us and invites us into relationship with him. He gives us his unconditional, his agape love. And he gives it freely. And he calls us to live in community first and foremost with him. And the way that is shown is in the way that we live with one another. So our unity with God is shown in our unity with one another. And when you've got disunity in a church, what you've got for sure is that the people involved are disunited with God, whatever they profess. Jesus said, John 13, verse 24, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The Apostle Peter Drove it home, didn't he? Keep loving each other earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. God loves us even when we turn against him. God loves us even though there are things right now in our lives where we're trying to say to him, not that area, Lord. Just keep out of that compartment of my life, would you? God says, no, I'm not finished with you yet. He'll strive with us, he'll discipline us, but he still loves us. 
And God calls us to follow his example. Every time we come around the Lord's table, isn't it an issue? It certainly is in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Where it's saying to us, don't be a hypocrite. Don't claim to be united with God if you're disunited from other Christians. Are there people you need to make it right with? Are there people that you have wronged? Are there people that you've got a grudge against? Leave your gift. Go. Be reconciled. You see, our unity with God has got to be demonstrated in our unity with one another. Now, the Bible is realistic about that. It's realistic in the sense that God is at work at different times in our lives and the lives of other people. But insofar as it is our responsibility, insofar as we in good conscience before God, it's our duty to go and seek to be reconciled. That person won't be reconciled. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility before God is seek to be reconciled. But I want to just as I close, just turn you to the last verse of Psalm 133. So if you're still in John, come back to Psalm 133 with me, please. You see, why is it so important? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's so important because it's a gospel issue. For what happens, the second half of 3a, of verse 3, what happens where you've got unity that is a sweet perfume, that is so refreshing, like the, Mount, the dew of Mount Hermon falling upon Jerusalem? What you've got is this. There the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. You see, it's a matter of life and death. When a church is united in love for God and growing in love and working at love one with another... It's able to delight in its diversity in Christ. But it's there, isn't it, that God is pleased to pour out his blessing, even life evermore. In other words, eternal life. And it's simply a reiteration of where I was a, a few minutes ago, isn't it? Where that's happening, there the gospel progresses. Because people see, as well as hear, the gospel. Better felt than felt sometimes. There they see, in the relationship of this diverse group of people, ready to love one another, ready to allow love to cover a multitude of sins, there they can see something authentic, something that is born of the Spirit of God, that is truly supernatural, that they can't find anywhere else in the world. There God is at work, and there the gospel travels into the life of people. And that's what God has designed the church to be in the world, isn't it? And Christian brother and sister, you do know, don't you, in the words of Bill Hybels, that the church is the only hope for the world. Do you realise that? This church here is the only hope for Long Crendon or any other church that preaches the gospel in this locality. It's the only place men and women, boys and girls around here are going to hear the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. And they need to listen to it and they need to observe it and see it in the lives of those people who, knowing the love of God, who, knowing reconciliation with God, portray it. The church is the only hope for the world. And where the church is disunited and where it's in discord, where it becomes a disgrace in the community, 
the gospel is lost, isn't it? And men and women travel to the judgment. And the church has blood on its hands. It's that important, isn't it? And wherever the cancer of petty jealousy and envy and pride takes a hold on a church and causes division and disunity, whatever we pay lip service to means that the witness of the church is totally null and void. Whatever we may think, whatever we may pray otherwise... My dear brothers and sisters at Long Crendon, God has put you here for his glory. Praise God for what he's done in and through you and for the unity that he's given you and the church at Cornerstone. But it's a precious flower. It has to be worked at every day. And the devil, the one thing he wants to do is to destroy that unity. That's why we need to clothe ourselves with the armour of God, Ephesians chapter 6. That's why the Lord's table is so important in our life together as the people of God. Because it forces us back to the cross. It humbles us, it derides us for our pride. As Isaac Watts put it, you have to do another banner for this one, won't you? But he talks about looking at the cross, doesn't he? And he talks about how it humbles his pride. And so it's intended to. As we often say in the marriage ceremony, that which God has joined together, let no man put asunder. How good, how pleasant it is when brethren live together in unity. Let's take a moment to to pray in the quietness of our own hearts before we end our day by singing of the preciousness of the Church of God. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. Nothing is hidden from your sight. And you know the propensity of every one of us, in one degree or another, to not maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Father, we know that the test, the temptation will come in the most unexpected ways and it will creep up on us suddenly. And we pray, Lord, that you would guard us and that you would so fill our minds with the beauty of Christ and with the preciousness of the church that it would be an abhorrent thing for us to think of ever seeking to damage, however unwittingly, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, we look to you. Please help us to maintain that God-given fellowship that we have in Christ. Help us to rejoice in our diversity. Help us indeed to be those humble in spirit who are ready to allow your love, your love for us and your love for our brothers and sisters to cover a multitude of sins. We thank you, Father, that your word is realistic. It causes us, calls us to challenge one another 
but to do so mindful of the log in our own eyes. So Lord God, I do pray for this fellowship here, the fellowship at Cornerstone, that throughout this year, throughout the decade indeed, throughout this life of this church, it would indeed be guarded and protected and that you would indeed, Lord, foster and generate a unity that will be for your honour and glory. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen.